everyone. This is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. My name is Daenerys. And I'm Nathan. And today we're sitting down with Dr. Daniel Kelly. Dr. Kelly is the director of the Pacific Neuroscience Institute and Providence St. John's Health Center, as well as professor of surgery at St. John's Cancer Institute in Santa Monica. He's advanced techniques of minimally invasive keyhole and endoscopic brain tumor surgery and oversaw the launch of the Pacific Brain Health Center in 2018 and helped create PNI's treatment and research in psychedelics. Dr. Kelly earned his BA at CMC and his MD at Georgetown University School of Medicine. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Kelly. So tell us about yourself. How did you get to where you are now? Well, that's, a, that's somewhat of a long story, but um, I was fortunate enough to come to CMC in 1978 and had a wonderful uh, four years here. Was a, a dual major in biology and chemistry. Um, thought a lot about which way to go. Um, was even thinking of going into marine biology, but ultimately um, decided to apply to medical school, almost in a way of postponing a decision, because I knew there were so many options in medicine. And going into marine biology is very focused, very narrow, and so uh, I applied to med school, got in, uh, went to George Washington uh, University, uh, I'm sorry, to Georgetown, and then um, got very attracted, actually got attracted to the neurosciences and to human evolution at Claremont due to some classes I took here and some wonderful professors. And uh, so as I went through med school, I got more and more drawn to the surgical subspecialties and also to neurology but really felt that neurosurgery would be a great, a great place to, for me to be because of the, uh, the very interesting and beautiful anatomy, the fact that neurosurgery is a very young field in a, lot of, in a lot of ways. We still have a long ways to go in terms of curing a lot of brain tumors, for example, that we treat. Um, and also I like sort of the, um, the athletic component of surgery, doing things with my hands. And so I went to uh, George Washington University then for my <coughs> neurosurgical residency. And then that's a, that's a long haul. It's a seven-year uh, program. So one-year sur one surgical internship and then six years of neurosurgery. And, uh, and then I ended up, when I finished, I came to UCLA in 1993 and uh, worked there, really focused uh, over time. Did, did a lot of general neurosurgery and then over time focused <coughs> on uh, on brain tumors and pituitary tumors, uh, tumors of the skull base. And then um, I started looking at some other opportunities and uh, I ultimately went to um, the what was then called the John Wayne Cancer Institute, um, which is in Santa Monica at, at Providence St. John's Health Center. And really went there to start a neuro-oncology program, a brain tumor program. And so that was in 2007. So that was after 14 years at UCLA. And then uh, we developed a, um, we expanded into other things beyond brain and skull base and pituitary tumors, built, developed a stroke program, hydrocephalus, and then ultimately developed a brain health program. And um, our group, we, we sort of butted off of the Cancer Institute and formed our own group, Pacific Neuroscience Institute, focused in the full spectrum of of the, the neurosciences. And so, so that's where we are now. We have uh, about 35 people, 35 docs in the medical group. We cover a bunch of different hospitals, but our home base is at St. John's in Santa Monica. 
And so how do you transition from um, neurosurgery or minimally invasive surgery to the treatment of various psychological disorders with psychedelics? Great question. Um, well, so one of, you know, we created these different centers of excellence at, at PNI. So we have brain tumor, pituitary, um, hydrocephalus, facial pain. We have a movement disorders program. But we didn't, we, we did not have anything um, up until 2018 kind of in the bigger, in the broader realm of brain health. So um, all types of mental anguish, um, memory loss, dementia, um, depression, anxiety, PTSD. And so we decided to create um, the Pacific Brain Health Center. And we're very lucky to be able to recruit a number of excellent docs from UCLA, um, geriatric psychiatry, um, neurology, uh, and, and psychologists, neuropsychologists. And so, and the, the real focus there initially was on dementia, but I had, you know, been keeping an eye on things in psychedelics and it, bec it was becoming very clear that there is a psychedelic renaissance afoot and has been going on now for probably 25 years quietly and now it's really sort of exploded. It's very hard not to notice it or see it out there in the, in the lay press and podcasts and books. And um, so we, back in 2018, began to, um, and I, I was really pushing this to develop a psychedelics program. And so we were fortunate enough to create it, to recruit another person from UCLA, Keith Heinzerling, who's an addiction medicine specialist, was running the addiction medicine program at UCLA. And Keith came over and joined us, joined PNI in 2019. And, and really the, the mission of our program, which is called TRIP, Treatment and Research in Psychedelics, is to um, advance the safe and effective use of psychedelic assisted therapies for a whole spectrum of um, mental anguish. So the, the main focus is really, at this point, um, depression, anxiety, addiction, PTSD, but there will undoubtedly be other, other applications. And so we've really sort of dove into this head first. And um, I think it's, I think what's so um, interesting about it is that um, it may be applicable to so many things that we don't have very good treatments for right now. And so we're very excited about launching our clinical trials and getting involved in, in trying to push um, these drugs, which as you know, are all schedule one now. So psilocybin, LSD, um, MDMA, they're all schedule one, meaning they, they quote, have no, no useful uh, medical purpose and they are illegal. And so the only way we can use them now is in clinical trials, but the, the goal here is to get them rescheduled to where they can be used in, in safe settings. And just to expand on that a bit more, um, in regards to only being able to use them in clinical trials, um, has there been any sort of government pushback even in that regard? Um, has a state or federal government tried to prevent any of the ongoing or future studies? So um, yes and no. You know, the, the FDA and the DEA are extremely careful and they're cautious. Um, but they also know that we have a terrible addiction problem in this country. We, they know that we have many people that are depressed and anxious and on all sorts of drugs that don't work very well for them. And they are open to, um, they are open to trying uh, new things. 
And in fact, the psychedelic story is not a new story. It's actually a very old story. And, um, you know, it turns out that LSD and psilocybin were, were used in mainstream psychiatry in the 50s and 60s. And then because of um, what happened in the 60s, um, political pressures, cultural pressures, they, they created something called the Controlled Substances Act, and all of those drugs went into Schedule One. Well, MDMA was later, but it also went into Schedule One in the 80s. Um, so the FDA is approving um, the use. Uh, they're approving clinical trials. Um, the DEA is not rescheduling things, but uh, provided these, they're letting the clinical trials go forward. And if the phase three trials for any of these compounds, you know, prove positive, they will be rescheduled. And that's the hope. Yeah, so that's a really positive improvement. And I think we've definitely seen a trend of state-specific decriminalization of different drugs. But how do you think that trend towards decriminalization will really affect self-medication and recreational use in terms of things like microdosing outside of prescription or doctor recommendation? Mm -hmm. And what impact do you think that that will have on the medical community? I think the people that are have been deeply involved in these studies. A lot of them are very worried about the decriminalization laws because they're worried about sliding back into this kind of wild recreational unstructured use of psychedelics. Now there are people within that group that promote that and think it's okay as long as you're in a safe setting with the right people, you know, you have a guide. Um, as as uh, I will, you know, discuss tonight, all of these, um, clinical trials are done with a guide, with significant preparation, psychological preparation, screening to make sure that the individual, A, doesn't have any risk factors for, for having a, you know, a challenging or, or a bad trip, so to speak. Uh, schizophrenia, for example, family history of schizophrenia uh, are exclusion criteria. Um, making sure that the individual knows what their intentions are, whether it's they want to stop smoking or drinking or they're extremely depressed or they have they have cancer and they're dying what are the goals of the of the of the journey um, and then having experienced guides that um, help them through because in almost all of the journeys whether it's MDMA or psilocybin or LSD individuals with a full dose a heroic dose of psychedelics will have challenging periods because the drugs take you to these places that you need to deal with. And um, so having all those safeguards in place are, are really critical. And I think the decriminalization that has occurred, say, in Denver or in Oregon, um, where they actually have a program, a two-year ramp up to develop a program for the safe you know, prescription use of it, um, I think that the situation in Oregon is a little different from what happened in Denver. In Denver, it's just decriminalized. You can have psilocybin and they won't, they won't bust you, you know. But um, in Oregon, they have a much more structured program that they're actually building out over two years since the election, since the 2020 election. So they have two years, I think it's January 2023, when they are supposed to have a program in place where people can, they can go to the therapist and they can, if they meet some criteria for mental anguish, they can be prescribed psilocybin in a journey-type format, set and setting. So we've talked a lot about um, the re 
recent trends in decriminalization and you know the impact of the medical community. But I'd really like to hear the reasoning behind why you're so excited about psychedelics and why this has become such a big trend. Why do you think that psychedelics are going to be a big thing to treat mental health issues? Well, I think it's mostly because they work. And where other things don't seem to work so well. And it's really a, uh, it's a different approach. So if you think about antidepressants, anti-anxiety drugs, for example, those are really sort of suppressive therapies. And um, the neurochemistry and the neuroscience, I would say, behind the classic psychedelics, for example, um, psilocybin and LSD, is really more an expansive um, approach. So it, it really tries to expand and reconnect your neural networks that don't normally connect with each other. And it's one of the fascinating areas, too, that they don't really know how and why they work. We know that they work on the serotonin system. They're serotonin agonists. MDMA is also a serotonin agonist, but it's a little bit more messy. It does things with dopamine and other things. But suffice it to say, what's, what's amazing is that the most of the trials, if you compare to, say, standard therapy for nicotine addiction, 20 to 25% success rate with shenterics and other ways to quit smoking. With the initial study done at Johns Hopkins, it's more around 70% with a single guided session of psilocybin. And so it's, it's, a, it's orders of magnitude higher than what we're seeing with, with other, other things. And I think um, with other other treatment modalities, and um, and and that's why. And the other thing that is so interesting is that these drugs seem to be what we call transdiagnostic. They seem to work across these different different uh, ailments of depression, anxiety, PTSD, addiction. Um, and I think it's because it's a very different approach. It's a it's a it's a sort of expansive approach as opposed to a suppressive approach. And I, I think it's going to uh, transform behavioral health care. And I think that's what a lot of people believe, that you know, this was an unfortunate event, what happened in the 60s and 70s. And this was, this was happening in the 50s and 60s, and it all went away. It all went into the deep freeze. And hopefully it's going to be done you know, carefully and cautiously, and, and we'll see. You know, the numbers are still pretty small. But I think that's why I'm so excited, and I think um, – so many other people are excited. Yeah, it definitely looks like a, a lot's going to be happening in, in the next few years in this field, as well as um, in the future as well. And I, I would just love to know your thoughts um, on where you hope all of this goes in the next uh, 20, 50, 100 years. Uh, what, what do you think the end goal of this is? I think the, the end goal is to have these therapies available for patients who need them and, and across, you know, cultures and socioeconomic levels um, and for a variety of ailments and that there there there's not the stigma you know there's not the when people still when they hear LSD they a lot of people have a really bad reaction and in fact when I started talking about this with my colleagues back in 2017 2018 they really thought I was crazy for example so We've come a long ways. Now all of my colleagues are, you know, drinking the Kool-Aid, so to speak, 
and um, they bought in because they can see where this is where this is going. Um, I would say the one the the one thing that's a little bit concerning is that just like anything that sounds really good and has you know potential to be sort of game changing. Um, so many startups have gotten into this, and there, there's really the, the corporatization and monetization of the whole psychedelic renaissance is in full swing. And there's some very big companies out there now that are betting a lot on this. And you just hope that, you know, corporate greed and, and those things don't get lost and sort of the going back to sort of these shamanistic cultures that, that started this and, and, you know, the essence of what we're trying to do, um, you know, and having people have a mystical experience or a spiritual awakening. And there is a concern that so many companies are trying to get in on this and um, that it may get some of that kind of core goal of what we're trying to accomplish may get lost. So we'll see. Yeah, that's a really interesting trend. I hadn't thought about how companies might want to get into this business. Do you think that we'll see some sort of government regulation of these startups? And how do you think the government perception of this trend, is it changing? Is it kind of the same as it was after the 60s? What does it look like now? Well, I think it's it's very different now. There's, there's a lot of scrutiny. And just like any clinical trial of a new medical device or a new therapy, a new drug, um, you know, the FDA looks at those things very, very carefully. Uh, but like I said early, earlier, there's, there's a, um, they're acutely aware of how bad things are with, you know, addiction and uh, for opioids, for example, and, and other things and prescription medications overuse. And so this is really, it's a different paradigm. And I think big pharma is probably very worried about this because, you know, you go to something that you take every day, you take a pill every day, maybe you take a combination of pills every day to try and feel better. And you then you go to having, you know, a psilocybin journey maybe once a year or maybe once every two or three years. That's a different business model. And that could spell a lot of um, concern and worry for big pharma. Um, so it, it's going to be really interesting to see how this plays out. So to switch gears a bit, um, in addition to your work with psychedelics, you've also co-authored studies on cognitive degeneration in retired football players. Um, can you highlight some of the most interesting research findings in, in that study and generally throughout your career as well? Sure. Well, uh, when I was at UCLA, I did a lot of uh, traumatic brain injury research looking mostly at um, severe, severe head injuries. There's a classification, you know, mild, moderate, severe. So these are very bad head injuries where people come in with a coma, come in in a coma from a car accident, a gunshot wound, an assault, et cetera. And um, it's a tough area. It's a very tough area. You know, probably the, the biggest factor in people recovering well is youth. So the younger you are, the better, more likely you are to make a, a better recovery. As you get older, it's harder to recover. Um, the plasticity of the brain goes away. When I went to uh, St. John's Health Center and the, the Cancer Institute, um, the, uh, we, were, we were offered to, to do a study with um, 
retired NFL players. And when I was at UCLA, we did a study looking at hormonal function after after head injury. I do a lot of pituitary surgery, and and I've we we got interested in the traumatic effects of of head injury on the pituitary gland. So. Uh, we had an NIH grant when I was at UCLA in severe traumatic brain injury on endocrine function. And we, we found that um, the growth hormone axis and the, um, the sex hormone axis are the most vulnerable. Turns out that, that the, um, the thyroid axis and the stress hormone axis, cortisol, are very pretty resilient to head injury. But about 20 to 30% of patients with a severe head injury would lose some of that function after head injury. And it was something un kind of undiagnosed. There's no one would check for it. But even as an adult, you need growth hormone. Um, and there are growth hormone and IGF-1 receptors in the brain, actually. Um, and it's sort of a quality of life hormone, just like the sex hormones are. And testosterone in men, for example, um, it's not just for libido. It's also for muscle muscle mass, exercise capacity. Um, you know, if you're hypogonadal, you gain men gain weight, um, you lose muscle mass. So we so so basically that study showed that it's a fairly common event after a severe traumatic brain injury, and we wanted to look at it in the NFL population. And because of a connection we had. At the hospital, uh, one of our, our the, the board chair for the foundation is a retired NFL player, Bob Klein. He had connections to all these retired NFL players, and we put together this study doing the same thing, looking in retired NFL players. Did they have um, pituitary gland dysfunction, and did it correlate with any of the neurocognitive issues that a lot of them get, you know, the, this post-concussive event? So with, you can imagine in the, in the NFL, it's a lot of recurrent minor head injuries over and over and over again, probably starting in high school, then college, then, then in the pros. Interestingly, we found about the same number of people with, with growth hormone deficiency or gonadal deficiency in this retired cohort. Now, it was a small study, but it, you know, I think the point of that is, is that the, you know, if you, the, the brain is, connected to the pituitary gland by a very small uh, structure called the infundibulum, and then the pituitary gland is sort of the, the, the hormonal connection between the, the brain and the body. And um, it's a really critical area, small area, and it's vulnerable to such trauma. So I, th I think that's, that's the point, that a lot of quality of life things may not be, um, and even memory things may not be because of the brain injury per se, but because of the underlying neuroendocrine hormonal issues as well, so an important thing to look for. Yeah, I really like the way you described the, the hormones that are affected kind of as these quality of life hormones. Yeah. So I would really like to know how you, if, if you know the answer to this, but how the NFL might be applying those findings that you just discussed. Well, I think um, since we did our study back in severe traumatic brain injury many, many years ago, and then this NFL study, and then there have been a number of other studies that have highlighted that that traumatic traumatic brain injury can lead to hormonal dysfunction. I think all of the um, the professional athlete groups, the NFL, when they have um, like the retired NFL Players Association, um, this information is out there. I'm still not sure it's out there enough. But that, you know, if someone is not doing well from a neurocognitive standpoint, from a depression standpoint, um, even anxiety, those sorts of things, um, that is, should be part of the workup. 
looking for undiagnosed um, pituitary gland failure because it's treatable. You know, it's, it's replaceable. Um, you know, women can go on estrogen, progesterone. Men can go on testosterone. Growth hormone replacement is, is used in adults. It's a, again, it's a, it is truly a quality of life uh, hormone. Um, you know, it's a, growth hormone is also an abuse uh, hormone uh, drug in some ways for bodybuilders. You know, you can take too much of it. So you want to always hit the, the sweet spot with the, with the pituitary hormones. Something you mentioned earlier was um, psychedelics uh, essentially rewiring the brain. Um, I, I'd lo love it if you would be able to kind of uh, describe what the process is, is like. Okay. I don't know that I know the answer to that, but, but the working hypothesis, <laughs> that's a great question, and really one of the reasons this is such a fascinating area. Uh, the working hypothesis for um, the classic psychedelics psilocybin and LSD are the most common, is that they, through being a serotonin agonist, they work on this part of the brain called the, the default mode network, which is this, um, it's a neural network of a number of different brain structures that is really thought to be um, sort of what, what constitutes your ego. You know, where you worry about the future, you fret about the past, you ruminate on things. Um, and what the psychedelics do is that they, they essentially disassemble the default mode network and because of the serotonin activity. And it allows all of these neural networks that don't normally communicate together to communicate. And the hypothesis is that this sort of flood of additional information and connections allows people to have sort of an epiphany of sorts new understanding, new meaning of certain things, like why am I drinking? You know, um, I'm depressed because of this, this, and this, but give them a, a, fresh, a fresh perspective. What's fascinating and what we don't know is why does it last? You know, how can you have a single guided session um, and a, an individual never smokes again? So that is a, a very ripe area for, for study and a lot of people are trying to answer those, those questions. Um, but, you know, that's sort of the working, the working theory. Yeah, that's, that's a really amazing explanation. I feel like that really helps me understand how, um, how that whole process works, because I feel like it can be very, a very mysterious process. Mm -hmm. The next question we wanted to ask you about is kind of centers around how neurosurgery is portrayed in the media, because I think that also contributes to a little bit of the mystery. So there are some really popular shows, you know, Grey's Anatomy. There's also been a Marvel movie, Doctor Strange, where the main character is a neurosurgeon. So would you explain a little bit about how maybe your day-to-day -day differs from theirs? Is it as fast-paced? Is it as intense? How would you describe your normal day? Sure. So first of all, I don't watch any of those shows, so <laughs> I'm a little bit handicapped in the answer, but I'll give you my real-world uh, take. You know, neurosurgery is the practice of, you know, surgical treatment of um, diseases of the head and uh, structural diseases of, of the head, the brain, the skull base, the spine, right? And um, my practice is focused entirely on brain tumors, um, both malignant and benign, uh, tumors of the pituitary gland, which are very common, 
malignant brain tumors such as gliomas, glioblastomas, you may have heard that term, uh, and occasionally spinal cord tumors, tumors of the spinal cord, not of the spine itself. And so, you know, my practice is uh, I have a big clinic on Mondays. I maybe see 20, 25 patients, old patients, new patients coming in with a recently diagnosed brain tumor, patients I operated on five years ago, 10 years ago. Um, Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays, I usually do surgery. And then Friday is meetings. But things, you know, are mixed up here and there. It's not totally, totally set. But that's sort of the basic schedule. Um, you know, getting diagnosed with a brain tumor is a terrifying event for people. Um, sometimes, in, in many cases, my, my practice is mostly benign tumors. So we have many happy outcomes. Um, and um, we really try to explain to patients, you know, what they're going to go through, um, what it's going to be like. We talk to them about the potential risk. What are the potential complications? Um, Fortunately, in our hands, we have a very low complication rate. We're, we're all about minimally invasive approaches. We've, we've, we've pioneered or been part of some of the pioneers of a, a number of minimally invasive approaches of removing tumors through the nose, through incisions in the eyebrow, small incisions behind the head. We use um, not only the operating microscope, but we use an endoscope, which is a high-definition surgical telescope, which gives us these beautiful up-close panoramic views. And so we can do things. Um, for instance, in my training that we used to do with through very large incisions, big craniotomies, big openings up of the head, and we do these things now through much more um, uh, minimalistic corridors. And as a result, our patients often are able to go home the day after surgery. Um, you know, I operated on two patients yesterday, one for a brain tumor, one for a pituitary tumor. They're both discharged out of the hospital today. Um, and we have, uh, we don't use the ICU as much as we used to. Um, and so it's, it's a, I, I would say that um, modern neurosurgery has come a long ways and it's been very fun to be part of that. We publish a lot of papers on our outcomes and we teach a lot on these minimally invasive protocols. Um, and so and I have uh, some great junior colleagues and we have a fellowship training program. So education is a big part of what we do. And we put on courses and symposia and we teach at different courses around the, around the country. And of course, for the last year and a half, because of COVID, we've been doing a lot of Zoom conferences. I, I was involved in a um, Saturday night last weekend. I was giving a talk at 10 p.m. for a morning conference in Jakarta, wow. <laughs> Indonesia. Wow. Um, so you know, we're always trying to push the envelope on minimally invasive techniques and making people get through it better. For the malignant tumors, you know, we have a whole neuro-oncology group of neuro-oncologists who, you know, basically are cancer doctors for the brain. And so there are a lot of tumors we can't take out completely. There's a lot of really bad malignant brain tumors who, where surgery is just the first salvo. It's the first treatment. Take as much out as you can figure out the diagnosis, look at the biomarkers, figure out whether they're gonna get chemotherapy, immunotherapy, radiation, or a combination of those. And so it's very much a multidisciplinary effort, um, particularly for those kinds of patients. Um, for the patients with pituitary tumors, you know, it's affecting the master gland, the pituitary gland we were just talking about. So we work very closely with the endocrinologists who are the, the hormone doctors. 
And so it's a, it's a very rich area of the neurosciences and um, you know, it's, it's gonna keep, keep evolving. So you know, we, we have a, a great program at PNI and, and I think um, the other thing, I, I think a, a lot of neurosurgeons is, are portrayed as, as sort of um, people with God complexes and you know, um, just kind of disturbed personalities. And there are clearly some of those people in our profession, I must say, as there are everywhere. But um, I can tell you that the people that I work with are really, you know, sweet, loving people, compassionate people who are trying to do the right thing for their patients. And, um, you know, I'm not sure you, I'm not sure how much of that you get, <laughs> you get on these programs. So that's, that's kind of the, my world and my day job. Well, thank you so much for sharing all that. And I, I think I can confidently say that um, it, it does not seem like you have a, a God complex <laughs> in, in neurosurgery. Um, but uh, just in regards to your day-to-day your -day work and uh, how you got to be where you are today, uh, you really went down uh, quite a extensive and, and interesting pathway to, to where you are now working in, in both psychedelics and uh, as a professor and uh, a neurosurgeon. And there's a, a, a fairly large number of students at the five Cs, um, surprisingly at Claremont McKenna as well, who are interested in, in STEM or in the medical field. Mm -hmm. um, so just to give them some, some advice, um, is, is there anything you'd recommend they do um, in continuation of their college career or post-grad or just any line of work um, if they'd like to do what you are doing today? Yeah, well, so actually um, we have a program for students at PNI and uh, my daughter was a graduate from Pomona um, in 2020, and so I b was very involved in Pomona, and we, um, um, and no disrespect for my alma mater, CMC, um, <laughs> but we actually worked this thing called Handshake. Um, it's an internship program, so we set up two interps internships, and it was actually, it's open for the entire, the entire um, five college campus, so people from, you know, Pitzer, CMC, Scripps could, could come and we've had a bunch of students come and they basically spend time with us and they, pre-COVID, they, they could come to the operating room with us, they come to clinic, they see us you know, evaluating patients in the clinic. They, we have an, a, an anatomy lab, a, um, a really wonderful lab that my partner saw, set up, Dr. Barkadarian, where you know, we have cadaver heads and you do dissections on those and different surgical approaches, try different instruments, that sort of thing. Um, I would say for someone that's interested in the, you know, in the neuro in neurosurgery per se, that's a, a great opportunity. Um, we have the opportunity as well in other areas, in, in uh, you know, in brain health and uh, other areas. Um, and I know a lot of this was put on hold because of the pandemic, but we're hoping to to set this up again in in person. But I would just say in general that. Um, the neurosciences is such a fascinating area and it's vast, it is so enormous. And so um, it can be a little bit overwhelming as to what you wanna get in and what you, what you wanna get into and gravitate toward, whether you wanna be in, you know, go to medical school and become a neurologist or a neurosurgeon or a psychiatrist for that matter, um, whether you wanna go into, you know, pharmaceuticals or basic science um, and look at, you know, animal neuroscience. I mean, there's all sorts of, there are so many options and I think you have to, um, people have to decide what they gravitate toward. I, I will say that I think um, 
this, you know, psychedelic assisted therapies and the neuroscience of psychedelics is going to be a huge thing. And there's a lot of um, places like Hopkins, NYU, UCSF. I mean, our group is, is not a, you know, a big, a, a, a formal academic group, but there's a lot of um, formal academic institutions that, that will be creating, they will be adding on uh, psychedelic assisted therapies as part of their um, training protocols again and course curriculum. So I, I think it's, I think that's definitely on the horizon. That's great to hear, and that opportunity at PNI sounds so fascinating. So I hope all those neuroscience and pre-med majors listening are going to look out <laughs> on Handshake for that. Um, and thank you so much for your time, Dr. Kelly. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have today. And to all our listeners, remember to stay hungry. <laughs>